you'll take your Bible with me this morning, if you'll open to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. Deuteronomy, if you don't have a Bible, your electronic Bible, find your place there uh, in your electronic Bible. Deuteronomy, chapter 34. This is the 20th message from the life of Moses. And uh, this is the closing scene of Moses' life. And we will finish this series entitled The Designated Deliverer. Uh, we will finish this series of 20 messages from the life of Moses today as we look at uh, this final picture that we get of him. I can tell you that there's a lot more about the life of Moses that we could talk about that we've uh, just passed right on by. Uh, Moses uh, is a wealth of truth and information uh, when you begin reading his life and looking deeper uh, into his life. Let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you will guide in this service. We, we come before you and we acknowledge that we need you. We need you not only, I not, I not only need you to, to preach, Lord, we need you to hear. Lord, we have to come together and listen to what you're saying to us. We pray that you'll give us open ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Lord, empower me, empower these who are here to listen. And Lord, may our lives be touched and changed. In your name we pray, amen. As most of you know, Mary and I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. We say that, I say that about every other week, just to remind you. Uh, we've been here 36 years, but my, my point is this. Growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, our two families, respectively, um, would frequently go to Chattanooga, Tennessee to look out mountain. And we didn't go together. We didn't know each other at that time. But both of our families would make that two-hour drive. It was a good one-day trip if you wanted to do it in one day, or sometimes it would be a short weekend trip. And it was something to do with the family and some entertainment and uh, just a time to get away. If you've ever been on top of a Lookout Mountain, you know that it's absolutely beautiful. I, I go back far enough to remember that when you drove up to the top of Lookout Mountain, one of the things, or two of the things you had to be concerned about, the first was that your car didn't overheat going up the mountain. And you'd sometimes drive up the mountain. I was just a kid, but you'd, you'd drive up the mountain. You'd see a car off to the side, and there'd be smoke coming out of the, out of the radiator of the car because it had overheated trying to get to the top of the mountain. The other thing that you had to be concerned about was coming down the mountain because it, your brakes got hot, and, and then they wouldn't stop you. Now, cars are a lot better designed these days. You don't have those same problems anymore. But uh, I can remember those days when we would talk about that as we would go uh, to the mountain. We've got to make sure we don't overheat the car and we don't overheat the brakes coming down. Uh, I'm more concerned about the brakes coming down than I was <laughs> the overheating of the car going up. Uh, you know, sometimes when Mary and I go home or, or we, we come back here, we'll stop at Lookout Mountain just maybe for the day. Uh, there's a little corner restaurant up there uh, where you can sit outside. You don't have any pretty views. You can see the town of Lookout uh, Mountain, but you don't have any pretty views. But you're sitting outside, and you're on top of the mountain, and it's cool up on top of the mountain. And we, we enjoy doing that. It breaks up the trip uh, generally when we're coming home. Every once in a while, we'll stop, and, and we'll go to the top of the mountain and spend a little, little time there. It may take us longer to get one way or the other, but we'll spend a little time on top of the mountain. Now, if you've been to the top of Lookout Mountain, uh, you know there's a, there's a number of attractions and there's a lot of beautiful scenes. Uh, there's a couple of pictures from Point Park that I took. Uh, that's looking from the top of the mountain at Point Park, out over the river, out toward uh, Chattanooga. Chattanooga really is a little bit to the right there. There's another picture here, sort of the same scene, but you get the idea of how high up you are when you're on uh, Lookout Mountain. Uh, on top of Lookout Mountain, there's not only Point Park, there's other things, and one of them is Rock City. If you've been to Rock City, you're familiar with what I'm talking about, but if you haven't, you may have seen the birdhouses, the big, the red birdhouses, and it says Sea Rock City on the side of it, and uh, you, you haven't seen those? Uh, you see that, or you see it on the side of a barn somewhere that says Sea Rock City, or maybe Ruby Falls, but Rock City, you're thinking, you know, what do you want to go to a Rock City for? Well, it, they're basically they're trails that walk out across the rock formations. You look at the flora and the fauna, you, you look at the rock formations, you go in a cave, you see waterfalls, uh, you can go across swinging bridges. It's, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of things to do. It takes you about an hour and a half if you're going to make the entire path uh, from beginning to end. Uh, on top of uh, the mountain, this next picture as you look at it, is uh, something that uh, will remind you here 
of uh, the needle's eye. Uh, you can walk through the needle's eye. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you like to walk through there? And I always think to myself when I'm walking through a place like this, I'm thinking, you know, uh, what if there's an earthquake? <laughs> and those rocks shift. Uh, if the needle's eye is not good for you, there's fat man squeeze. Um, <laughs> And uh, you go down these steps between these enormous rocks. That's the back of Mary's head. Um, she got through no problem at all, obviously. She had to turn around and sort of pull me through on occasion. Uh, you got as well lovers leap. Uh, hopefully there weren't two lovers that leaped off of that corner out there, that way out there. That's called lovers leap. And uh, you get to stand out there and you can look out across that valley and see all of the beauty out there. There's a rock that's precariously uh, positioned on these two legs. It's a thousand ton rock and you walk underneath it. You see that lady underneath it and you let the adrenaline flow for a moment because you realize the only thing holding up that thousand ton rock are those two other rocks and you're wondering how, how, how safe is this? Of course, it's been there since I was a boy. So, you know, I guess it's pretty safe. Uh, if you continue out that path, you end up at a little restaurant out at the very end uh, before you turn and come back. Uh, that restaurant, you can see, is right on the edge. They have different tables. They've got some that are right on the edge, and then you step up, and there's tables behind, and then tables behind. On this particular occasion, when Mary and I were there, um, <clears throat> she said, let's eat at the restaurant. And I say restaurant, they have sandwiches and pop and coffee and you know, dessert. It's not fancy restaurant. I said, okay, let's, let's eat. We'll, we'll eat while we're out here. So she, she proceeded to ask for a table, and she took us out to this table that's right here on the very edge. You go on the other side of that railing, it's straight down. And I, I'm not sure whether she was thinking about it or whether she was intending it. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of heights. And so here we are sitting out here on the edge of, of this rock, this ledge, and I ordered the barbecue sandwich and a Diet Coke, and they brought it. I could not even swallow it. <laughs> my throat was so constricted from my nerves being so tight, thinking that surely, I, is it like this for you? If you're fear, afraid of heights, when I get close to these kind of places, I feel like something's pulling me over the edge. Any of you like that? I feel like, thank you, there are some other normal people in the world. I feel like something's pulling me over the edge. And we sat out there, and I finally choked down the sandwich. And she's just over there eating, enjoying herself, just relaxing. And, uh, uh, but, but there's another place that you can go while you're out here at this point uh, where you can supposedly see seven states. It's a little bit to the right of this. I took this particular picture just to give you a view. Uh, and to the right of this, they have a sign that says you can see seven states, and it's got arrows that are pointing in the different directions of the states, and it's got how far it is to those different places. And uh, I stand there, and I, I look out, and I think, well, I don't see the lines that divide the states. That, they're on my map, but they're not there. And I'm, I'm always wondering when I've stood there through the years, can I really see seven states? I can certainly see two or three for sure. Can, can I really see seven states? And then Mary always reminds me that you have to go to that telescopic thing that they got, several of them across that ledge, and you've you got to look through it so that you can see a greater distance. But seeing through that telescopic thing means getting up at the very edge of the cliff. <laughs> so I have never seen through those telescopic things. Maybe you can see seven states if you get right there and you look through that that telescopic thing. You say, why do you share that story with us? Because it's sort of fun. You go up there, you think you're looking at seven states. Maybe you are. If you're looking through a telescope, you're seeing seven states. But do you know there was an experience in Moses' life where God took him to a mountaintop, uh, Mount Nebo to Pisgah, the highest point, and God let him look over into the promised land and let him look over into the place where God was going to take the younger generation of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, led by Joshua, where he was going to take them into that land. And it's described for us here in Deuteronomy chapter 34. We'll read all 12 verses. Follow along with me. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, 
all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea. That's the Mediterranean. As far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Now think about it. He's at the highest point, and he's looking out over all of this land, sort of like looking out there at the seven states. He's looking out all, over all of this land, and he's seeing all of these different areas. Obviously, they didn't have a telescopic device to look through. God must be giving him a supernatural ability to be able to see all the way to the Western Sea, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. But he's able to behold all of this land on top of this highest point, looking out over this valley and over this, these mountains that are ahead of him, being able to see all of these things. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes. But now notice carefully, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. In other words, uh, there was a burial service and God was the one who attended it. God is the one who took the body of Moses and buried it so that nobody could find it. There's a little interesting verse of scripture that's found in the book of Jude, where Jude picks up a quote from an extra biblical source and puts it into his letter where he says, Michael, the archangel, did battle for the body of Moses with the devil. Now, if that actually happened, uh, Jude was using that quote for a very specific reason, but if that actually happened, it would have happened somewhere around, around this time that we're reading about at this moment. And the only thing that I can think of that might be the possibility as, as to why that would have occurred, if it did occur, but because if they knew where the body of Moses was, they would have done what they did with so many other things, they would have turned it into an idol. And so God just didn't let them know where his body was, and uh, though Satan wanted it so that he could use it to tempt them into idolatry, God didn't allow it, and Michael uh, didn't allow it. Verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Just be reminded, it wasn't his age or his lack of vitality that kept him from being able to go into the promised land. Something else must have happened. Verse 8, And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now most of the time when you weep for somebody that has died, even important people, it's seven days. Sometimes it's a shorter period than that. By them weeping for 30 days, he's giving to you an indicator of the significance and the importance of this man Moses, how the people felt about this man Moses. Though they caused him no small amount of trouble along the way, when it came time and he died, they nevertheless recognized the greatness of the man himself. Verse 9, now Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel." And thus we have the concluding scene of the life of Moses. We've gone with him from his birth, when his mother took that little basket and floated it on the water, all the way through his call to the ministry, all the way at this moment to the time when his body, he's, he dies and his body is buried by God and he's remembered by his people. Now out of this passage of scripture, there's three things that I want us to look at. First is Moses, the servant of the Lord. The second is the sin that kept him from Canaan. And then finally, a salutation like no other at his death. And think with me for a moment, first of all, about what it says about Moses in verse 5. It says, Moses, the servant of the Lord. If you turn over in your Bibles just a page back or so, 
to chapter 33, verse 1, you'll notice this is now, this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel. He was known as the man of God. He was known as the servant of the Lord. Somebody who is a man of God is to be the servant of the Lord. And as the servant of the Lord, he is the man of God. These phrases complement each other if they don't overlap one another. So that what God wants you to know at the end of the life of Moses is that what marked him as much as anything else that marked him was that Moses was a servant. And he was a servant, not of the culture around him. He was a servant, not of the people that were around him. He was a servant, not of the society around him. He was a servant of the Lord. You know, that should be the desire of all of us in our lives to be remembered and to be known as people who are servants of the Lord. And we don't make much today about serving. We're more about ruling. We're more about having the leadership, being the point person where everybody gives us the praise and the accolades and everybody knows who we are. Pay attention to me. That so often is the, is the attitude that permeates the age in which we live. And yet God comes and God says to us through a man like Moses, the greatest quality to be remembered at your death is that you were a servant and specifically that you were a servant of the Lord. And here is a man who is known, even in these last moments of his life, as being a man who served the Lord. You understand what that means? That means he humbled himself before God. That means he surrendered his will to God. He surrendered his ways to God. He surrendered his desires to God. He said, God, my life is your life, and whatever you want with my life is what I want with my life. He gave himself fully and wholly and totally to the Lord in absolute surrender to the Almighty God. That's what it means to be a servant of the Lord. It means what I want more than anything else is for God to be glorified and God to be pleased and God to be honored by the life that I live. I want to be considered a servant of the Lord. I'm not worried about whether I'm the point person or whether I get the accolades or I get the approval of everybody around me. What I want more than anything else is that God will say about me that I am a servant. Just think about for a moment how important being a servant is. You think about what Jesus had to say about it. Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to serve, but I didn't come to be served, but to serve. You remember Jesus saying that? I didn't come to be served, but to serve. You remember when the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest? And Jesus taught them, the greatest among you is the one who serves. You remember the story? In Philippians, the Apostle Paul, talking about Jesus, talks about Jesus and him being a servant. He took on, the Scripture says, the form of a servant. And one of the greatest phrases I think there is about Jesus is the one that says he went about doing good. He went about doing good. Jesus went about looking for people that he could minister to and he could care for and he could serve. And he came not to be served, but to serve. And that was his entire life. Jesus came serving. And Jesus turns everything on its head. He turns everything upside down. In a world that is filled with pushing ourselves forward, Jesus says, that's not for my disciples. Jesus says, what's most important for my disciples is that they be known as servants. Servants. And here he is to the last moment of his life. You say, Pastor, I'm retired. I no longer have to serve. You find that for me in the Bible. It may be that you have to retire because of your job. It may be that you have to slow down some because of your body and your health. But every one of us, to the last moment of our lives, until we see Jesus face to face, every one of us are supposed to be serving him. We are to be known as the people who are the servants of the Lord. If somebody were to give testimony about your life, somebody were to give testimony about the way you live your life, would they say about you, he serves the Lord? She serves the Lord? More important than anything else in all of life? Do you understand that everything else we do is important and everything else we do has value and everything else we do is significant, but it's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Amen. The end in itself is that we would be servants of God. There's a dear man in our church that periodically I call on him, and when I do, I have to pull him away from his job 
for him to help me in the particular area where I need his help. And, and I'll always apologize. I say, I'm so sorry. I, I know I'm taking you away. He, of course, he always says he wants to do this. Always call me if you need this. And so I, I do. <laughs> so don't tell me if you don't mean it. <laughs> but I do, and I call him, and he comes, and he helps me. And, and I'll say something to the effect, I'm so sorry I took, took you away from your work. I know you, you own these businesses, and you got so much to do. He said, this is my job. My job is serving the Lord, doing God's work and doing God's will and surrendering my life wholly and fully to the Lord. This is my job. You mean those, those three businesses that you own aren't your job? Listen, that's a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. The end in itself is that I be known as the servant of the Lord. And that's how Moses was remembered. Moses was remembered as a servant of the Lord. And by the way, this is God who is speaking. God knows whether you're a servant, whether I'm a servant or not. God knows. In the estimation of God at this moment, in the last moments of the life of Moses was, Moses is my servant. Moses has served me and served me faithfully as a servant of God. He had taught us about self-denial when he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think of what he gave up to follow God and to be obedient to God. He taught us as a servant about courage when he stood before the Pharaoh demanding he, he let the people go, the Hebrew people go. Think of the courage that it took to stand in the presence of Pharaoh who could have taken his life in an instant. He taught us about priorities when he showed greater value for the reproach of Christ than for the riches of Egypt. And he took upon him, as Hebrews says, the reproach of Christ, the reproach of the people of God, the reproach of the things of God, and gave up the riches. Can you imagine? He taught us about patience as he endured the constant complaining and grumbling of the Hebrew people. Oh, man. If you've never had to put up with grumbling and complaining, you don't have any idea what Moses must have felt. And yet through the midst of it, he was patient. You remember on at least two occasions, on at least two occasions, you remember the, the people were complaining and grumbling and griping and God says, I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Yeah. And yet through all of that, Moses was patient with all that was going on. He taught us about prayer when he interceded for his people that God wouldn't destroy them. Lord, please don't destroy them. What will the other nations think if you destroy your own people? What about your glory, God? And he taught us about prayer. He taught us about faith and about trusting God in every circumstance of life. He's noted in Hebrews chapter 11 by, by saying, by faith, Moses, by faith, Moses, by faith, Moses. He taught us about faith and about trusting the Lord. Here is a man that when you look at his life, you stop and you say, he served God in his generation. He had 120 years of life. Anybody here 120? 120 years of life. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years on the backside of a desert where God emptied him of himself. And 40 years of leading the most uh, grumbling, frustrating, aggravating people ever, I imagine. And 120 years of his life, and you get to the end of it, and God says about Moses, Moses, the servant of the Lord. What will be said about you when it comes time for your memorial service? What will be said about you at your death? What will be said about you when it comes time for you to die? What will be said about you? He served his business he served in you know, many other capacities in the community. He served, by the way, there's ways to serve the Lord in those capacities as well. But when we serve only the community, and that's all we do, and there's no, there's no, there's no situation where we see and understand that this is about serving the Lord, how will you be remembered? Here is a man that came time for him to die, and what does it say about him? He was the servant of of the Lord. Can I just stop and tell you that it's not going to matter a whole lot at death whether your children got, um, got uh, you know, grant money to be able to go to college, scholarships because of their excelling in a particular sport or because they had some kind of uh, incredible intellect. 
It's not going to matter that you have a, a job and you rise to the pinnacle of that position in your company and you're the most powerful man in the company. It's not going to matter if you have fame and fortune. If you haven't used what God has given you to be the servant of the Lord. At the end of your life, that's how you want to be remembered. You want to be remembered like Moses. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Not the servant of the company. Not the servant of the society around us. Not the servant of the culture we live in. He was the servant or she was the servant of the Lord. He or she surrendered his will and her will, sacrificed himself and herself to be able to do whatever it is that God would have you to do. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Second thing I want you to see is the sin that kept him from Canaan. And to do that, we have to go back a little bit to Numbers chapter 20. So keep your place here and turn with me back to Numbers uh, chapter 20. The older generation has died, the ones that disobeyed God and God said they would never enter the promised land. The younger generation has arisen, and they're moving toward the staging area to get ready to cross the Jordan and go over into the promised land. But the younger generation had learned some of the ways of the older generation. Notice beginning in verse number 4. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? This is the people speaking, speaking to Moses that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. In other words, barren. Why would you bring us here, Moses? So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod... You and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, circle the next word, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water from them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we wait a minute, who's going to bring the water out of the rock? Moses and Aaron or God? Moses and Aaron or God? God's going to do it. Moses, then why are you taking credit for it? Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock. He did what? He struck the rock. What did God tell him to do? God told him to speak to the rock. And how many times did he strike the rock? Twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe. What do you mean you did not believe? Lord, uh, Lord, what do you mean we didn't believe? This is faith that should have exercised works. This is faith that should have been demonstrated in their actions. They should have believed the Lord and only spoken. By disobeying, they were showing disbelief. But furthermore, he says, to hallow me. You didn't hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. You didn't show me to be the Holy One. You diminished my glory, is what he's telling them. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Wow. I know. There's, there's always people who say, well, that just seems awfully severe to me that God would, with this man who has done so much over almost 120 years at this moment, almost 120 years of his life, he's done so much on behalf of serving the Lord, and yet here he is at the last moments of his life, listening to the complaining and the grumbling of the people, and, and he sort of boils over, if you will, he sort of cracks for a moment, and he does what he's not supposed to do, he strikes the rock twice, which there's great uh, there's great significance spiritually to that. We'll not get into that. He strikes the rock twice rather than speak to the rock. And God says, because you did that, I'm going to let you see the land, but you're not going to enter it. So that's, that's, that's awful harsh for a man who has done so many of these things. Why would God treat him that way? 
We say that's, that's the attitude too many of us take toward God. But you've got to understand something. James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Don't ask to be a teacher or a leader unless you're willing to accept the greater judgment that comes with being the teacher or the leader. Because with greater responsibility comes greater judgment in your life. If you're given this kind of responsibility, Moses, then you're going to be held to a greater standard. And here was a man who he knew what was right to do. He was angry. And can I just stop here and say for a moment that I have sympathy for Moses? Do you? I mean, he's dealt with this for 40 years, and now the new generation has grown up, and the new gener- generation is just like the old one when it comes to grumbling and griping and fussing and complaining. And he must, he must have just reached the point when he said, I can't take this anymore. You've never been there? You've never been there? I mean, I pastor a small church compared to the nation that he was leading, some two million or so people. Can you imagine that many people and all the complaints and the pressure that would be constantly on your life? But when you have a position of leadership, with that responsibility comes greater judgment when it comes to God and we obey the Lord, and we demonstrate before others by our obedience to God and by doing what he says, we show to them that we hallow God, that we treat him with holiness for who he is, and that we believe him. When he says do something, we do what he says because we believe him. Look over at Deuteronomy chapter uh, number one. Deuteronomy chapter number one. In the book of Deuteronomy, what Moses is doing is he's giving a, a, a reminder to the younger generation about what God has done. He's reiterating the law so that they will know the law and what God expects of them, and then he gives a blessing to them at the end. But Moses is speaking to this younger generation. Listen to what he says, chapter 1, verse 37. The Lord also was also angry with me for your sake, saying, even you shall not go in there. Wow. He's rehearsing it before them. Look over at chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23. He even asks God to relent and to remove this punishment. Verse 23, then I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. You probably said that to your children, haven't you? They keep coming and asking the same question over and over. Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, the east. Behold it with your eyes. You shall not cross over this Jordan. If you look at chapter 4, verse 21, he continues. He says it over and over again. He knows. He knows he made a terrible error. Verse 21, furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan, that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do you hear him? I mean, it's clear. He knows that he was supposed to have obeyed the Lord. He should have acted in faith before the Lord, but he didn't. And here's my estimation. My estimation is that if Moses could redo one moment in his life, You can't. If he could have a mulligan for one moment in his life, my estimation is that it would have been that moment when rather than speaking to the rock, he struck the rock twice and he showed his lack of faith in God and he didn't hallow and show how holy he treated the Lord his God and it resulted in him not being allowed to enter into the promised land, even though, you remember what it said about him? He was 120 years old, but his eyes were still good His vitality was still strong. But when you're in a position of leadership, with that leadership, with that responsibility, comes greater judgment in your life. God holds you accountable in ways that he might not hold others who don't have that kind of leadership. 
And here was a man who failed God in that respect. If he could repeat any moment of his life, it probably would have been that moment. When you get over to chapter 31 and chapter 32, he repeats it again and again. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I know I'm not going in. I know I'm not going to be a part of going into the promised land. And then when you get to chapter 34, God says, okay, it's time. It's time. He takes him to the top of that mountain. By the way, he's 120 years old, and he, he, he climbed this mountain on his own. Think about that. He's 120 years old, and he climbs that mountain, and God gives him the ability to look out from that peak all around, and he's able to see the land that God says, I'm going to give to the people just like I promised them. But Moses, you're not going there. What was the sin that kept him from Canaan? It was his unbelief. This was a moment of testing in Moses' life as a leader. It was a moment of testing in his own life. And when he failed the test, he lost the opportunity. A man who still has vitality, his eyes are still good, this man lost the opportunity to enter into the land. Now here's the thing I want you to get. You know what the sin is that kept him out of the land of Canaan, but I'm grateful that when God describes the man Moses, he doesn't describe him or define him by that failure. We read about it because we're reading a biography of his life, an autobiography of his life. We're reading about his life, but God doesn't define him by his failure. What did God say about him? Moses, the servant of the Lord. He didn't put a little asterisk up beside it and say, the servant of the Lord who failed me at such and such time. God forgave him. But you've got to understand something. Please, please get this. Young people, please get this. God forgives sin, period. Thank the Lord. But that doesn't mean that all the consequences are always removed. And here was a man who was forgiven. And when God said about him at the end of his life, he's my servant, he didn't bring up the failure but there were consequences because this was a man who was in a position of leadership and in a position of leadership, there was greater responsibility and there was going to be greater judgment. He was held to a higher standard. He failed in the presence of the people of God to show the holiness of God, the glory of God. And he failed to obey God. And in failing to obey God, in essence, he was disbelieving God. But that isn't how he's defined through the rest of the story. And aren't we thankful? You say, I've got a terrible failure in my life. There was a time when I had this responsibility in this place of leadership. Let me tell you something, friends. God will forgive you. There may be consequences that you have to live out and you have to live with, but the reality is you don't have to be remembered for those things. And you don't have to be defined by those things. At the end of Moses' life, God still said about this man, Moses, the servant of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord, the sin that kept him from Canaan. And finally, a salutation like no other at his death. A salute, a eulogy like no other at his death. Listen to it again, verse 10 of chapter 34. But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. What a statement. Now, nobody can look on God and live. So when he talks about face-to-face, -face, he's, he's using that in the sense of the closeness that he and God shared. He wasn't able to look on the fullness of who God is, but there was a closeness that existed between Moses and God. Verse 11, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. You hear the eulogy? You hear the salutation? You come to the end of this man's life, and this is what the people are saying about him. By the way, I don't believe Moses wrote those last three verses unless he wrote them prophetically about his death. I think it's more likely that the man Joshua, who's mentioned in the verse just before that, appended this document with the inspired three verses that are included. 
And when they put these three verses in, what do they talk about? They talk about this man's life and what all God had done with him and through him and with him and how God had used him. Here was a man who was the servant of the Lord who had a sin that kept him from going into the promised land, but that sin was forgiven. And when the people thought about him, when the people thought about him, they thought about him in these glowing terms. You know, it makes me wonder, what will be said about you at your memorial service? What will be said about you at your memorial service? Now, I don't expect for these things that are true for Moses to be specifically said about you. But what will be said at your memorial service? Or maybe better to put it this way, will the pastor have to lie about your life? I went to a funeral service one time, just an attending. Went to a funeral service at a time, one time to, 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 for, to honor a family that had had a death. And the preacher was talking about the man whose body was in the casket before me, before us. And he was speaking of him in such glowing terms. I had to look a second time to make sure I was at the right funeral. You, you can't be describing the man that I knew. What will be said about you at your memorial service? I mean, yes, Moses had that moment of failure before God that cost him the, the privilege of being able to go into the promised land, but he was not remembered for that for the rest of his days. God forgave him, and God said, you are my servant the servant of the Lord. And the people recognized the greatness of this man and what God had done in him and through him. And when they spoke of him, you and I would all attest, if you've been with me for these 20 weeks, you would attest that all of these things are true. They didn't have to lie about Moses at his memorial service. What is the epitaph that will be written on your life? when it comes time for you to die. Mary and I have a, have a sort of a hobby or a habit that may be morbid to some of you, but we like to stop at places where there's old cemeteries and walk through the cemeteries. We were in South Carolina earlier this summer, and we went to a cemetery that was where the church was founded in 1705. And we walked out through the cemeteries and we looked through the cemetery and we looked around the various grave markers that are all out here. And, you know, sometimes you, you can read what's on the grave markers, the stones. Sometimes they're weathered so long that you can't read them anymore. But there's always things that are interesting that you can learn about people when they were born, when they died. Some of the things you, you look at the, the, the birth date and the death date, you know it's a child or you know they died early. There are some epitaphs that maybe will be on your tombstone. I haven't seen these myself, but they tell me that on one tombstone it says, I told you I was sick. <laughs> on another tombstone it said, she always said her feet were killing her, but nobody, no, nobody believed her. <laughs> or on another tombstone it said, I have nothing further to say. <laughs> or the one I like best, I was hoping for a pyramid. Tombstone's not, not good enough. I don't, I don't want just a you know, little monument here. I want, I want a pyramid. What's going to be written as your epitaph? How will people talk about you at the moment of your death? Will the preacher have to lie about the life that you've lived? Or will he be able to stand before the people and say, look, there are no perfect people. We've all failed and faltered along the way. But this man or this woman served God with all of his heart and with all of her heart for all of their days. And will the people that are sitting there listening to what the preacher has to say and who know you even more intimately than the preacher knows you be able to say, yes, that's who he is. Yes, that's who she is. It matters how you live your life. And we ought to desire a salutation at the end of our lives that demonstrates that we were what God says we should be, the servants of the Lord. And even though there are failures that God has forgiven and maybe some consequences with which we had to deal, nevertheless, that didn't define the rest of our lives, that we spent the remaining portion of our lives living out for the glory, our lives for the glory of God, for His honor and for His majesty. Moses, the servant of the Lord, the sin that kept him from Canaan. 
a salutation like no other at his death. I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Psalm 90 for just a moment. Let me bring this to a close. Psalm 90 for just a moment. Do you know who wrote Psalm 90? It is believed that Moses wrote Psalm 90. It may be the oldest psalm in the Psalms. No, David didn't read, write all the Psalms. And here's one that likely Moses wrote. And Moses writes about life. Moses had 120 years of life. Most people don't get that long. And he talks about the brevity of life. Chapter 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. And like a watch in the night, you carry them away like a flood. They are like sheep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. Do you get the point? And suddenly, it seems as if I'm old. What happened to life? It seems like just a day or two ago, I was young, and now I'm old. What happened to all those days of life? When you're young, you can't even imagine that. When you're young, you think you're invincible. You're going to live forever. And you are going to live forever in eternity, but I'm talking about live forever here. You don't think that there's ever an end to your life. You get to the middle years of life, and you begin doing the math. And you begin, hey, there's, more life, there's more years behind me than there are before me, or there's very little difference between those two. And then you get into the later years of life, and you realize, you know, I'm moving toward what is ultimate for all of us. That's what he's saying. The grass grows up, it gets cut away, it's gone. He goes down in verse 10, notice what he says. The days of our lives are 70, 70 years. And if by reason of strength they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. I mean, life is filled with difficulties. Life is filled with hardships. There, there are things you have to handle in life that are not always pleasant. But before you know it, life is gone. It flies away. Verse 12, so, because this is true, so, teach us to number our days. Cause us to stop and realize how short life really is. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, I've been with people at the last moments of their life, and I've never, ever, ever heard anybody ever say, I wish I had made another business call. I wish I'd made another business trip. I wish I had done a few more things uh, to, you know, to make my life more comfortable financially. I've never heard any of that. Never. I've heard people say, I wish I had more time with my family. I wish I'd given greater emphasis to the Lord and to the things of God. I'm going off into eternity. And I wish I had thought more of eternity than I did of what was temporary. And Moses, writing this psalm, says God may give you 70 years, he may give you 80 years. By the way, we have a lady that's 105 years old. And she is really cool to visit with. She's still spry, she still sees well. There's hope for all of us, we might make it. 105 years old. Can you imagine what you have seen in 105 years? But the fact of the matter is, we stop and we number our days. We realize there's not that many of them. Don't waste your life. And that's what Moses is telling us. I didn't waste my life. In those early days, he thought he could save Israel on his own. God put him on the backside of the desert and emptied him of himself. But then God called him, and for the, next, for the next 40 years, God used him to lead the children of Israel from Egypt and prepare them to enter into the promised land. And Moses didn't waste his life. And God said about him, Moses, the servant of the Lord. And though he had a sin that had consequences, that sin was forgiven and he wasn't defined by that for the rest of his life. And when it came time to give a eulogy, a salutation of his life, the people stood up and they had these glowing words to say about him. That 
were true. That were true. Listen, friends, we only get so many years. I don't know how many, how many it is for you or how many it is for me. We only get so many years. Don't waste your life. Use your life for the glory of God. Use your life as a servant of the Lord. Use your life to make an eternal difference. It isn't going to matter after death how much money you had. It isn't going to matter how powerful you were. What's going to matter is whether you have lived your life for eternity. Set your affection on things above and not on things on this earth. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Put first things first. That's what Moses is saying. Put first things first. And may I say this in closing? The very first thing is to make sure that you are right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you are right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus took our sins, your sins, my sins on himself. Jesus took the penalty of our sins on himself, and he died in our place. He was buried and he rose again. The only one who could do that is the sinless Son of God. He ascended back to the Father, and now he receives any and all who will come to him. He receives any and all who will come to him. Don't waste your life. You say, we're going to live it up. We're going to have fun. We're going to do all the things that people tell us we shouldn't be doing. Hey, nothing wrong with having fun in life. Nothing wrong with wanting to live as long as possible. But the fact of the matter is, you're not going to live here forever. But you're going to live in eternity forever. And if you're not ready to meet God through the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're not really, to re you're not really ready to live this life today.